We're in the midst of a sermon series on the Sermon on the Mount. It's found in Matthew chapter 5. And so if you have your Bibles, I'd like you to open them to Matthew chapter 5. And in this famous sermon that Jesus preached, these three chapters, 5, 6, and 7, he's talking about the kingdom of God. He's talking about what it means to be a part of the kingdom of God. What does it mean to be a kingdom citizen? And as you began this, we look in an area called the Beatitudes, which was your first uh, about 12 verses on there. And as you started looking at those verses, he talked about the character of someone that is in the kingdom and is a citizen of the kingdom of God. And then he talked about the influence you're going to have, salt and light, and that if you are a kingdom citizen, that you have an influence in the world all around you. And then for the rest of chapter 5, he began to talk about the conduct, okay? I've made a decision. I've received Christ as Savior. I'm a part of the kingdom of God. What am I supposed to do? What kind of life am I supposed to live? And he placed a challenge out there called superior righteousness. And he says that we're to have a righteousness about us that is different than just a checklist righteousness to where you say, I'm going to check this box, this box, this box. But it goes even deeper. It goes into, into the heart. And so he talked about different areas in there specifically to explain, hey, it's not just the fact you don't murder anybody. We're not supposed to be angry at anyone. It's not just the fact that you're not supposed to have an affair of, of, and, and go against the marriage vows of the one you're married to. You're not even supposed to look at another person with lust. And if somebody asks you to go one mile, go two miles. And, and if somebody says, hey, you need to love your neighbor, that's great, but you need to also love your enemies. And so what he did was he, he just extended, he extended this righteousness But it's a superior righteousness that none of us can do on our own. The only way we can have this type of righteousness is through the indwelling power of God's Spirit himself. And that comes when you make a decision for Christ. Steve was explaining it when we were getting ready to baptize people, that we're all separated from God because of our sins. Somebody has to pay that payment for our sin. Either we have to pay it or someone else. And God sent his son Jesus, lived a perfect life, to die on a cross, to pay the penalty for our sins, and then to be raised from the dead three days later to conquer sin and conquer death, and to give us that opportunity to become adopted into God's family, to be a part of his kingdom. And when you make that decision, and just even as young man said, he said, you know, I prayed it because I didn't want to think that someone else was making me pray it. I wanted to pray it myself. I wanted to make sure in my heart to ask Christ to come to my heart. And when that happens, it says that God's spirit comes into our heart. And through that regenerative power of God's spirit, he allows us to be able to have that type of righteousness that he's talking about. Well, you got to the end of chapter five, you move into chapter six, and Jesus in this sermon begins to shift to another area, and it's called motives. It's called our motives. And what we will look at in these verses is where he drills it down even deeper, and it says it's not just your acts, but it is the motive behind the act. And there's a question for us, and that is, why do we do what we do? How much of your conduct is regulated by the opinions of others versus what the Lord God Almighty thinks. Do you do things just so that you can get the applause of others? Or do you do things because this is what I believe that God wants me to do? If we were to be totally honest with each other today, we would say that there are many times in our lives that we do good things so that we can get the praise of others. We do good things so others can come and pat us on our back and say, hey, 
you're the best. You did a great job on that. Thank you for doing that. But you're, what we're going to find is that God judges us far more by the intent of our lives than by our achievement. I want you to see that again. God judges us far more by the intent of our lives than by our achievement. So what Jesus is saying is we're going to drill this thing down, and there's some great things that you may do, but what God does is he looks at the intent of the heart. He looks at your motives, and he lays this out in the very first verse of chapter 6. Look what he says. He says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. So he's setting the stage. He just had spent all chapter five saying superior righteousness. We need to, need to be righteous. But then he says, check out your motive. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. The kingdom citizen is to have the right and pure motive whenever doing good things. So what Jesus does, he challenges us. He says, I want you to have good conduct, but you got to have the right motive as to why you do that. And so for us as believers, especially members of a church, and living here in the, in the, in the Bible belt, it's easy to do some things just because it's expected of us in our culture or in or others, and we want others to look at us and say, hey, well done, rather than to do the things because this is what God has called us to do. Now, you are a very learned and thinking congregation. And there's some of you right now that are reading verse one, verse one of chapter six and saying, Hey, how does that square up with chapter five, verse 16? You are so smart to ask that question. And knowing that you were going to ask that question, I thought I'd go in and prepare an answer for you on that. So in your Bibles, in chapter five, verse 16, it talks about we're to be salt and light. And when Chad preached about that, he got to verse 16. It says, in the same way, let your light shine before others so they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who's in heaven. Well, how am I supposed to let my work shine before others? But in verse 1 of chapter 6, it says, beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them. It's because Jesus is talking about two different situations. One situation he's dealing with is cowardice of being scared to make a stand for God. And he is saying, you need to be salt and light. You need to let your light shine for others. They need to see your good works because it brings honor and glory to God. This passage, chapter 6, verse 1, is written to deal with vanity between those who want to show up and show out so everybody will look at them and say, hey, look what a great guy I am. There's a man by the name of A.B. Bruce that put it about as succinctly as it can be put. And this is what he says. Show when tempted to hide and hide when tempted to show. Okay, I want you to write that down because at 2 o'clock today while you're eating a meal, you say, hey, I think I understand that. Are you ready? Show when tempted to hide. That's 516. You're, you're scared. You don't know if you made to stand for Christ. You don't know if you need to be active in living this life for Christ. He says, when you're tempted to hide, you need to show. You need to show up. You need to show out. You need to do those things for God's glory. But on the flip side, you need to hide when you're tempted to show. When you're tempted to go and do things just for the, uh, the applause of others, he says, you need to step back and hide. So that's what Jesus is talking about. He said, I want to look at your motive. And so as you're looking at the motives, 
I began to read about this and, and when I saw when it says, for then you will have no reward from your father who is in heaven. So if all you do is to do something so you get the applause of others, he says, you don't get any reward in heaven. So just think of all the things that you've done, all the things I've done, that I've just done it for the applause of people. Self-promotion, self-aggrandizement, all those type of things. Guess what? That was my reward. Nothing else on that. Motivation determines the reward for acts of righteousness. Motivation determines the rewards for acts of righteousness. And what God does is he looks at our motives. And so, today, we're going to go through and talk about three things that Jesus talked about. Giving, praying, and fasting. And with each of those, we're going to look at motives. And I just want to let you know, whenever you do a religious deed, whether giving, praying, fasting, your motive will be one of three things. And you need to write these three things down, and I want you to hold on to them for the rest of your life. That's incredible, isn't it? It's not just till next week. It's not till 2016. Rest of your life. Because everything that you do, everything that you do for good, any religious thing that you do, you're going to do it for one of three motives. And you need to know that, and you need to be able to judge it. Number one, the first is to seek the praise of others. The reason I do it, seek the praise of others. So you see what I do. We're going to give you some illustrations on that in just a moment. Number two, you do it in anonymity. So I do something, the crowd doesn't see me doing it, but I'm quietly congratulating myself consistently. You know what I mean? You did it. You did something. I gave something to someone that nobody knows about. And I keep congratulating myself for what a great guy I am doing that. Or number three is this, the desire, the approval of God alone. Why I did is I believe God led me to do it, and I did that, and it is for his approval alone. You're going to be in one of those three, anything that you do. So let's take a look at what Jesus looked at. Number one, right motive giving. Right motive giving. Jesus comes down in verses two through four and he says this. Thus, when you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the streets that they may be praised by others. Truly, I say to you that they have received their reward. He says, sound no trumpet. We would say today, don't blow your own horn. Don't blow your own horn about what you're doing. Now, when it says, as some people do in the synagogues and in the streets, there were times when the synagogue would blow a trumpet and it would be a call for people to come and to give to the needy. And so what would happen, the trumpet would blow and all of a sudden the big givers would jump up first in line, start strutting down the street saying, hey, call for the needy, I'm coming. I got my checkbook, got my credit cards, I'm set to go, got a lot of bucks, you see me coming down? Good to see you. And you'd come and you'd be right there in the synagogue. He says, you don't do it like those folks. Or as those that do it in the streets. And believe it or not, what would happen during that day is some of the Pharisees, the people that had a, had a good bit of money, they would walk, get to a particular intersection, and they would blow a trumpet. Okay? I don't know about you trumpet guys. I hate to keep putting this on you. But they would blow a trumpet to get everyone's attention. And when they blow the trumpet, the maimed and the needy would come and begin to circle around this person and he was going to give them funds and he was going to be generous to the needy. 
And what he did was he blew the trumpet. He brought a crowd, got a big crowd. And I'm just going to guess he waits till the crowd's big enough. And then once it's big enough, then he takes out the funds and he begins to hand them out on there. And what Jesus is saying right here, these are things that these people could relate to. When you give to the needy, sound no trumpet before you as the hypocrites do in the synagogues and in the street. And he called them hypocrites. And that word hypocrite means to be a play actor. It means someone who's wearing a mask. It means someone who's pretending to be something that they were not. They were not giving to the glory of God or even for the benefit of the needy, but they were giving for the applause of men. Because deep down, they really weren't caring so much about the needy. They just wanted everybody to see them. And he said, that's a hypocrite. Augustine gave a great illustration of this, explanation of this. And this is what he said. It is not the being seen of men that is wrong, but doing these things for the purpose of being seen of men. And hold on to that. So what he's saying, and this is so true, it's not that we can't do anything publicly for other people. That's not it at all. It is the motive behind it. The problem with the hypocrite is his motivation. He does not want to be holy. He only wants to seem to be holy. He is more concerned with his reputation for righteousness than about actually becoming righteous. The approval of men matters more to him than the approval of God. And what it says in here in the verse, he says, truly I say to you, they have received their reward. They've received their reward. That reward is a technical term for a commercial transaction that takes place. Somebody gives you a sum of money and you give them a receipt. He said, it's complete. That's it. That's your reward. You've done the transaction. You got the receipt. You got what you came for. You want to get the applause of men? You got the applause of men. But guess what? You missed out on the bigger reward. You have nothing from the heavenly father. And he says here, I say to you, they have received their reward. That's it. Well, then what he does is he goes to a little bit deeper on there. And he says in verses three and four, he says, but when you give to the needy, do not let your left hand know what your right hand is doing so that your giving may be in secret. He says, your giving should not be prompted by the praise of your peers. You shouldn't do something so everybody else looks at you and says, wow, what a great guy you are. You don't take an act of mercy and make it move to be an act of vanity. Every good thing you do does not have to have a photo op, okay? Everywhere you go to do something, you don't have to have someone taking a picture of it so that you can say, what a great person that I am. Are you giving? Are you doing things for the needy and for the, and for the helpless in order for you to get the praise of others? But then you remember the second thing I mentioned to you, praise of others. The other, you can do it in anonymity, but you keep congratulating yourself. And he says, don't, your left hand should not know what your right hand is doing. Now, in that culture, most people were right-handed, and your right hand was your dominant hand, and when you gave gifts or whatever, you gave it with your right hand. So anything you did, you did it with your right hand. And they're saying, as you're giving your gift with your right hand, your left hand should not even know what your right hand is doing. Now, this is an easy verse for me because I'm left-handed, okay? And um, I don't use my right hand for much of anything, so my left hand is already clueless because the right hand doesn't do much. <laughs> so easy passage for me. No, but what he's saying is that you should not be giving a gift with your right hand and then with your left hand patting yourself on the back at the same time. See, that goes back to the anonymity. 
No one may know that I'm doing this. No one may know that I'm giving this incredible gift to you guys. But I'm constantly patting myself on the back saying, you know, it's pretty good of me to do that. And every so often, it's just I'm going through the day, that thought will come back up. And I'll congratulate myself again about how I was willing to take these funds and to give to the needy on that. He is saying, you don't, your left hand shouldn't even know what your right hand is doing. Now, I'm just going to step away from this for just a moment because I feel like I've had to deal with this for most of my life, especially as a pastor. And that is that people will read this verse. And so when they read this verse, I believe they go to an extreme. I've even read where some people went to such an extreme. They said, you shouldn't even keep track of your giving. You shouldn't keep track of your giving. Well, most of your giving is going to be off a check. You need to balance your checkbook. So yes, you do need to keep a track of your giving. If you've ever made a commitment to, to give to an organization, to an institution, or to a church and said, it's going to be a pledge, and over a number of years, I'm going to give funds, you've got to keep up with what you've given so you know what your progress is so you can meet your commitment. So it's definitely not talking about that. This verse is not saying that all giving needs to be anonymous and that large gifts should not be publicly recognized. Some people say benefactors shouldn't have their names written on sheets of paper or benefactors should not have names on buildings. Listen, this verse is not about how they treat you. This verse is about your motive for giving. What is your motive for giving? Some people will say, I want it to be anonymous. That's fine. But it does not mean that everything you do needs to be anonymous. It is whatever your motive is. There are times when those in leadership make significant financial commitments that need to be shared as an inspiration and a challenge to others. And to where people step up in leadership and say, this is what I'm going to do. And when they do that, it inspires and influences others to make similar sacrificial commitments. In the Bible, talks about David. As David's coming to, close to the end of his life, he's asked his son Solomon to be the one to build the temple. And then he goes to Solomon and he says, hey, why are you getting ready to build the temple? Let me just share with you what my pledge is. He says, I'm going to give you millions of pounds of gold, silver, bronze, and iron, along with timbers and stone. He was very specific. And then he met with the leaders and he told the leaders, we're getting ready to do this. You support Solomon. This is what God wants us to do, to build the temple for his glory. That was very specific. You come to the New Testament, in the, the church in Acts, when you get to Acts chapter 4, it says that no one was needy because everybody was taking care of everyone. And it said that people came and they sold houses and property, and as they sold houses and property, they took that and they placed it at the, the apostles' feet. It was all general, until you get to the very end of chapter 4, and it says, and Joseph, who was called Barnabas, a Levite from Cyprus, sold property and gave it to the apostles. Why did Barnabas get mentioned? Did Barnabas go to Luke, who was writing Acts, and say, hey, Luke, could you throw my name in there? Uh, you know, you're putting together the New Testament, and then you got the book of Acts, and uh, could you kind of stick my name in there to let them know what I gave there? No. Why does, was his name put in there? I don't know. You'll have to tell me. But I, I think that the reason his name is put in there could be because Luke knew Barnabas, and he knew his heart. He knew he's given for the right reasons. And it introduced us to Barnabas, who would later on be a key figure in the book of Acts. So everything, it does not mean that, that everything has to be anonymous for us to be consistent with this verse. It all comes down to your motive when you're giving of your funds. 
right motive giving should be marked by two things, self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness. Self-sacrifice and self-forgetfulness. Sacrificial, you give it, and then you forget about it. Don't dwell on it and just move on. And just move on. And be thankful you did it. You did it for God's glory. And then you move on. So you got to ask yourself, what's your motive for giving? Is it for the praise of others? Is it so that I can congratulate myself? Or is it to desire God's approval alone? But look what it says at the end of verse 4. And your father who sees in secret will reward you. He says, give in secret, but he says, it is your father who in secret sees you and rewards you. This is where you need to understand that our heavenly father sees everything. He sees everything. And he knows our motives. And he knows the reasons why we do things. He knows the background that goes into anything that we do, any religious gift or or, um, uh, or, or, or thing that we do that... Uh, that has an altruistic, altruistic value to someone else. He says, he, he knows all that. And he says, he sees it in secret and he will reward you. So God sees it in secret. So whatever you do, let's just look at it from a giving standpoint. Whatever you give to someone who's needy or to the church or to some other organization, as you give of that, he knows your motive. And as you do that, it says then he will reward you. You say, well, what is the reward that he gives you? It's a new sport coat. No, I'll just kidding, y'all. <laughs> Are you still with me? Hang in there. What is his reward? I don't know. You read all these different commentaries and like no one really knows. And I like that. You know why? It's in secret. It's in secret. It's in secret that he sees these things and then God rewards you. So what could be a reward? You know what one reward could be? Just the satisfaction of seeing the need met. The hungrier fed, the naked are clothed, the oppressed are freed. I mean, to see that and to know that you gave and to see that happen, that's reward enough. Or maybe it could be that it's a spiritual reward in which when you do something and your only desire is to give God glory and to give him glory alone, that once you do that, there's this closeness that you have with the heavenly father. You've just seen the smile of God. And you can't put a price tag on any of that. You just know that you have a deeper walk with him, a closer walk with him. You have just pleased your heavenly father. And that's reward enough right there. So it's not like extra crowns you're going to get in heaven. I believe it's just things right then and there that, that God rewards. Now, our purpose is not to get the rewards. Otherwise, you wouldn't get the reward. You don't do something so you get the reward. You do something because you want to please God. You say, God, I believe this is what you called me to do, and I'm going to do it. And then guess what God does? He gives you a bonus, and that is there will be a reward. And it could, be, it could come in all different type of forms on there. You're not given to get. You're given. You're giving because that's what God's called you to do. And then what God does, he has his way of rewarding. Let me just tell you what. See if this can all come together and, and tell you what, what I had the opportunity to do a couple of weeks ago. We're in a capital campaign that is halfway through called Chapters. In our Chapters campaign, a portion, 20% of everything that we give to a Chapters campaign goes to what we call mission advancement. 
And in Mission Advancement, we have identified certain partners to help them with certain projects. But there is $200,000 just sitting aside over there, which goes towards church planting. And we can use that for however to try to help people that are planting churches. Our church is the lead church for New York City. A couple months ago, God placed on my heart, he says, Danny, what if through the funds that our people are giving, that we made a commitment to do something that would impact all five boroughs in New York City. And through my opportunity of just crossing paths with people, I began to build relationships and I knew church planters in all five boroughs. So I believe God's leading in the right direction. Packed up, flew up to New York City, uh, flew up there on one day, met with three different church planters on one day, met with some more on the next day and then flew back home. And sat down with them and, uh, and just asked them, where you are in your ministry right now, what is it that our church could help you with that is beyond your budget and that would be a tremendous help to your ministry? And so I want to introduce you to five people that I had an opportunity to talk to. The first one is Israel Kelly. Let's see if we got, if we got Israel's picture up there. Israel Kelly. Israel Kelly's from Dominican Republic. From the Dominican Republic. And he, he deals, he's reaching Hispanics for Christ in the Bronx. The Bronx has 25 zip codes. His goal is to have a church, is to have a church Bible study in all 25 zip codes. He's already got 11 of them taken care of and he's just getting after it. He's got a musical background. And he said, one of the greatest things that could happen for us is we just don't have good equipment. There's some instrumentation, there's a mixing board, and uh, I've researched it, and it's, uh, it's equipment that if we could have this, we could then make our songs, and we could record our songs, we put it on Facebook, and that's where most people learn about us, and then they would come, and they could... Um, uh, visit our church and we make contacts. Also, we could also make tracks and we could take these tracks, we could sell them and that would be a help to our church to raise income. I said, okay, so how much does something like that cost? And he had it all broken down. He says, it's about $12,000. And it was wonderful for me to sit across the table from him at a coffee shop and say, we'll do that. Shades Mountain, we'll take care of that. You go work the details out, get with the city missionary, we'll cut you a check, you get to do that. You think he was happy? You think Israel was pumped? You think a guy who's been singing for a great deal of his life just got jacked up beyond means? Oh, he was talking so fast I couldn't understand him. And, and so he said, oh, bro, this is going to be great. I said, man, I'm fired up for you. We got the Bronx. Well, then we went to Brooklyn. Oh, went to Brooklyn, met this guy named James Robertson. Now, James Robertson, uh, he, he is, he's a character. And he's going to be with us at GIC, starting a church called the Bridge Church in Brooklyn. Sat down with him, eating breakfast with him. He and his assistant I said, asked the same question. And he came back and he said, we came to the realization that we've got a number of children that are coming to our church, but all we're doing is babysitting them. We really are not teaching them and training them. And I can't do that. And this guy can't do that. If we could just get like a part-time children's minister to come in, that would be such a help. And he's got an idea as who he'd want. Well, that's great. Well, how much would that cost? Well, it would be about $400 a month. Like $400 a month, 15 months, that's about $6,000. I'll tell you what, we'll take care of that. We'll take care of it. And we wrote him a check for the first three months and gave it to Jeremy. And Jeremy went up there uh, just this past week to meet with these guys and to talk to them and say, go on and get that person and get them there. Woo, James Robertson was high-fiving me left and right. He said, man, I can't, I, I can't believe this, that you're going to do this. And I said, we are thrilled to be able to do this. 
Go and get that children's minister and get them squared away. I think the next is it Drew Griffin from uh, Manhattan. Drew Griffin, we know Drew. He's been with us at GIC. Sat down with dinner at him, and he says, most of my needs, I think, are kind of taken care of. He says, but there's one thing. There's an individual that I have met who does individual coaching to help me with leadership and with church planning. And Manhattan is the most difficult place to plant a church, and that's where he is. And I said, oh, that'd be great. He said, but it costs about $300 a month for that to happen. I said, tell you what, for the next 15 months, $300 a month, $4,500, we will take care of that. You continue that relationship with that guy and for the next 15 months. Man. He said, I just can't thank y'all. Y'all have been so kind to us throughout. And now to give us this over and above, this is going to be such a help for me as we're moving forward with this church. So then we went to Staten Island. And there's a guy by the name of Nick Moustakas at the Journey Church there. He had contacted me a couple months earlier when I talked to him. And I said, what's your greatest need? He says, we need a worship leader. He, our church is growing, and it is. They're doing a great job out there. We don't have anybody. So I've got a guy chosen, but I just don't have any money for him. We're going to be self-sufficient financially, we believe, at the end of February of 2017. I said, okay, tell you what. We'll cover 20 months of, of this individual salary, and I think it's about $600 a month. We'll cover that for 20 months, and you get your worship guy. When I was in New York, I sat, had lunch with him, and I said, tell me about your worship guy. He said, oh, he's doing great. I kidded him. I said, thanks. Otherwise, I was going to cut the money. No, I said, no, he said, he's just doing great. I cannot tell you what that's doing to our worship and how wonderful it is. But my favorite was the one I met for, um, uh, for lunch the first day I was there. His name is Sylvanus. And Sylvanus with his wife, Alina, he's from Nepal, she's from India. He was, got an MBA, he was working in finance in a business, felt God called him as he was working in a church there in Kathmandu that he was to come to the United States and plant a church to deal with the Nepalese people in New York City. And he moved. He and his wife, they moved in the spring of this year, and they came. And when they came, they came, planted themselves, began to make some contacts, and they've got this huge population in Queens. So that would cover Bronx and Brooklyn and Manhattan and Staten Island. Now we got Queens, and he says that's where there's a huge group of Nepalese people there. And I'm so impressed with his story and what all he's done. And I said, so what is your greatest need? And he says, our greatest need is to get our adopted son to the United States. They adopted a young boy at the age of nine years, of, when he was nine years old, and today he is 16 years old. He's from India. And they left their adopted 16-year-old son to travel to, to the New York City, and since March, they have been here, and the son has been in Kathmandu, and they've not been able to get together. There's a lot of legal things they've got to do, documents that need to be filled out. And so I listened to his story. And he began to talk about along the way, there's a passport cost, there's an airplane cost, there's this document cost, and then there's these living expense costs and stuff. And, and as he's throwing those out, he's a finance guy, he had the numbers, I'm adding them up in my head, turns out to re really about $3,000. And so he's sitting there and his wife's sitting there, and he goes through this whole thing about how we've got to get the legal documents, hopefully get those approved, and he said, it would be just a joy if we could get our son here by Christmas. And one of the great privileges I have as your pastor is I got to sit at that table and look at that couple in the eye, and I said, let me tell you what Shades Mountain will do. I said, we'll cover all your expenses on that. I said, you work on the legal documents. We'll handle the financial part. There was a moment of silence, and then his wife 
Man, she's bringing out the Kleenex. We're getting ready to see a flood. All right. She's bringing the Kleenex out. She's dabbing her eyes. Sylvanus putting his arm around his wife. He's biting his lip. He's just shaking. And he just says, I cannot believe you're doing this for us. I said, hey, it's a joy for us as a church to support the work that you're doing. Let's get your son here by Christmas. Now, I tell you all of that to say, this is what we get to do as a church because we're giving to what we feel God's called us to do. I just want to take you to the next step. I'm on the board of trustees, North American Mission Board. Next week, flew to Salt Lake City to be at a, at a workshop, at our uh, trustee meeting. Different trustees have to get up and give a report. I was one of them. When I gave the report, I call it skin in the game. Every trustee should have a skin in the game. And so I said, let me just tell you what our church is doing in New York City. I shared that. Not for Danny's glory, not for Shades Mountain's glory, but I shared it just so they can see what churches can do. God gave me the reward at the end of that because as I'm getting ready to leave the hotel to get on the airplane, a young pastor caught me by the arm and he says, I want to thank you so much for sharing that. He said, I was just thinking, we've got $5,000 in mission money that's just, it's just sitting there. And what we were going to do is just carry it over to next year. But you know what I realized is? We've got a church planner who's got a roof that needs to be fixing. And as soon as I get home, I'm taking that $5,000. I'm giving it to that church planner and said, let's go fix that roof for you. He says, thank you. That was reward enough for me. Because what God says, Danny, what we're doing, we've got an influence on others so they can expand and advance the kingdom of God. Man, in your giving, right motive giving is not so that others will be so impressed with what we do, not so that we can pat ourselves on the back, but so that we desire God and desire him alone. And then guess what he does? He takes it and he begins to multiply. Okay, we're running really quick. We're short, so we've got to cover praying and fasting quick, all right? In fact, maybe we'll stay here all day, and then we can fast <laughs> for lunch. You are such a smart congregation. Your spirituality just, just, it just runs me over. Uh, but I will let you out, okay? Are you ready? People are leaving even as we speak. All right, here we go. Um, then he talked about praying. Okay, look what it says about right motive praying over here. Verse 5, he says, And when you pray, you must not be like the hypocrites, for they love to stand and pray in the synagogues and at the street corners that they may be seen by others. During that day, you would, um, you would have a service in the synagogue, and they would choose a lay person to be responsible for the service. And he would stand up there, and he would pray and pontificate these incredible prayers. What we call is he was praying up to his audience. He was praying so everybody would be impressed with his wonderful prayers. And then it says, and at the street corners, and at the street corners. The pious Jews would pray three times a day, and one of the times they would pray would be at noon. And if you were really a good pious Jew, you know what you'd do? You would choose just the right corner. It would be like around noontime, if it was you or me and we were going to do this, we'd show up at the city center right there between Starbucks and Moe's and the Egg and I and uh, Panera Bread and Zoe's and stand right in that area and we would do our prayers. That was where we would pick to do our prayers. So everybody could see us and how spiritual we were. And he says, for they love to do this, and they love to do it in the street corners, that they may be seen by others. But truly, I say to you, they've received their rewards. That's it. The applause and approval of men was all they received. Prayer not even heard by God. 
But he says to you, but when you pray, go into your room, shut the door, pray to your father who is in secret and your father who sees in secret will reward you. But then come to verse seven. And when you pray, do not heap up empty phrases as the Gentiles do, for they think that they'll be heard for their many words. Pagans and Gentiles used to pray to their gods and they believed that if they could use more words, that finally they would beat down their gods and their gods would hear them and give them their request. It was like your odds of success are greater with the greater proportion of words that you use. And he said, that's just not true. That's just not true. Don't be like the Gentile. Don't just do all these vain repetitions. Just so you can get longer prayers thinking that you're going to beat down God and that he's then going to answer your prayer. Don't be like them for your father knows what you need before you ask him. Now, how do you do right motive praying? Right motive praying is this. I want you to write these down. Right motive praying. Number one, it is private. He says, go into your room and shut the door. That's what he says in verse six. But when you pray, go into your room, shut the door. It's private. You get into your room. I hope you've seen the movie War Room. It's a great movie. And it encourages you to have a room, have a place to pray. Just to set aside a spot where it's just you and God. A private place where you can go to pray. Second of all, it is the directness. Right motive praying has a directness. He says in verse six, you are to pray to your father. You're to pray to your father. That's who it is. Everything is about him. Go right to your father. But then it is simplicity. Simplicity. It says in verse eight, he knows what you need before you ask him. We spend so much time in our prayers trying to inform God what we need. God already knows. Now, it's good to say it, but you don't need to say it over and 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 over again. He says there is a simplicity to it because he knows what you need. And then there's a sincerity. And that is that he sees in secret. He knows your motives. He knows the hidden things. He knows everything about you. And when you're sitting there and you go into your room and you sit down and you begin to pray to God, he already knows what's in your heart. He knows those hidden things. He knows those motives. And so you can be as open and transparent with God as possible. And when you have private prayer, it's a two-way conversation. You're praying and you're listening. You're praying and you're listening. And what Jesus says, this is right motive praying. Jesus did not say that you're not supposed to do public praying, not at all. He's just saying that your public praying needs to be an overflow from your private praying. And so when I've had my heart right with God, praying to him, that when it comes time to do public praying, it is just an overflow, okay? And then he says, this is how you're supposed to pray. That's the model prayer. We're going to talk about that uh, next week. That's going to be the Lord's Prayer. And last is this, and that is right motive fasting. Verses 16 through 18. And when you fast, don't look gloomy like the hypocrites, for they just figure their faces that their fasting may be seen by others. Truly, I say to you, they have received their reward. But when you fast, anoint your head, wash your face, that your fasting may not be seen by others, but by your Father who is in secret, here we go, and your Father who sees in secret will reward you. Fasting. That's a voluntary time of meditation, of drawing near to God, to where you abstain from something, from food or something else, to just focus that time on God. And he said, when you do that, you don't need to make a big hullabaloo so others will see you. During that day, 
they would fast. Many of those guys would fast two days a week and they would pick the days what they were called market days when everybody from the city or the town came together in the market and what those that were the most pious and hypocritical, they would get their hair disheveled. They'd wear old clothes. They'd look real tired. Even their accounts of people putting makeup on to even look worse. So they look all tired and disheveled so they can walk through the city and everybody looks at them and go, that's Danny. He's fasting. And that when they come up to him, he says, how did you know? It's kind of hard to tell. And, and he says, listen, when you're going to fast, let me tell you what to do. I want you to shave, I want you to shower, uh, wash your hair, put on some nice clothes, and just go on through with life. You're not to call attention to yourself. So how do you get right motive fasting? You can extend that. Let me just put it this way. Voluntary acts of spiritual discipline are never to become occasions for self-promotion. Voluntary acts of spiritual discipline are never to become occasions for self-promotion. Just circle that and think about that. Don't sit there and come into work and you're all bleary-eyed and tired and say, why are you so tired? Well, I was up all night reading the book of Leviticus, you know, it's just speaking to my heart. And I wanted to sleep, but God penetrated me. So I had to do that. (sighs) Come on. So whatever spiritual discipline you choose, Jesus is saying, look at your motive. Look at why you do it. Is it to get the praise of others? That's wrong. Is it even though it's anonymity? Are you back there congratulating yourself, patting yourself on the back? It's not right. Or is it just a desire for God's approval? just to see the smile of God, just to do it because this is what God's called me to do and I am going to do it. I remember when I was growing up, the big thing they told us as a youth group was, uh, you need to be proud of your Bible and take your Bible to, to school. And so then what they do, they would measure spirituality. You know, the guy that had a Schofield reference Bible about this thick and he'd haul that into school. That was pretty spiritual. Me, I was kind of a pocket New Testament guy, uh, you know, And you'd almost look down on someone on that. How crazy are we? It's not about self-promotion. It is about doing spiritual disciplines for God, for God's approval, because we desire to please him. In fact, that's really what the kingdom of God is, and that is pleasing God in the things that we do. There's a great statement I want to close you with. It was a quote from Alfred Plummer. He was a 20th century British scholar. And this is what he says. The light of a Christian character will shine before men and win glory for God without the artificial aid of public advertisement. Look at that again. The light of a Christian character. If you live according to what Sermon on the Mount says, the character and the conduct, the superior righteousness with the right motives... It's going to shine before men. It's going to win glory for God without the artificial aid of public advertisement, without me trying to promote myself. He says, God will get the glory when we have our motives right. So just ask yourself the question. Whenever I do something for the needy, or whether it's my praying, or whether it's fasting, or any other spiritual discipline, am I doing it for the applause of others? Am I doing it so I can pat myself on the back or am I doing it so that God would get the glory? If our motives are right, it says that our father who sees us in secret will reward us accordingly. We don't do it for the rewards. We do it for him. But he is such a loving father 
that you never know it. He's going to slip up behind you and there's going to be a little reward there that just gets you even closer in your walk with him. That's what it's like to be a kingdom citizen. Let me ask you to bow your heads, close your eyes for just a moment. Heavenly Father, we are so thankful for your word and for the challenge of your word. And uh, Lord, may we be a people who are always looking at our motives. Lord, we know that each one of us struggles with this. And we've all been guilty of doing things for the applause of others. Or even when we try to seem kind of spiritual, we find out we're spending a whole lot of time patting ourselves on the back. May you constantly convict us of our motives because we truly want to be a people that just please you. And so, Lord, I pray each person here that as they go through and begin to think about their life and the things that they do, and if there's some adjustments that need to be made on motives, I pray that that will take place. And that each one of us, when we walk from this place, that we will be thinking about, Lord, I want to desire, I want my desire is to please you and to please you alone. For it is in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.